I'm Chris McDonough, a retired homicide detective. I've interviewed thousands of people, from serial killers to ministers. Welcome to the interview room. Welcome everybody to the interview room. What an amazing Sunday evening and what an amazing program we have for you this evening. As you can see, I want to welcome back my dear friend and DNA forensic expert who has been doing this forever. She is the pioneer of the Bardol method because it is what she created after getting frustrated in the lab of looking at shell casings for so long she figured I would do it myself and she did and it is now the standard across the world called the Bardot method we have Francine with us tonight we want to thank everybody for being here thank our new subscribers our members our amazing mods and our panel, or excuse me, our Patreon members, including our newest Patreons, Claire, Vicky, Ruth, Lisa, Madeline, and Melissa. Thank you all for your support. Without you, we cannot be doing what we're doing out here. We are so grateful to each of you who support us and the Cold Case Foundation and just the amazing people that show up on this channel and this chant. We're thankful, as always, for our mods, Miss Sophia, Maui Girl, Teresa M, and Mimi J2, who is back with us tonight, as she was under the weather the last time. It's great to have each and every one of these women with us. Francine, you look great. How are oh, you? <laughs> I am fantastic. It's a beautiful day, and I couldn't ask for a better day. Man, I tell you, you know, I while we were watching, Karen and I were watching this trial and being out here in the low country up here in San Diego, or excuse me, in South Carolina. I got to tell you, this trial has so many twists and turns and ups and downs and lefts and rights. I mean, it's li it's literally like watching... Um, a movie or a book or an OJ Simpson or OJ Simpson <laughs> or OJ. Right. And right. We were, we've been through that, you know? Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, and we, we were out there yesterday 
And by the way, everybody, before I forget, you've got to be with me tomorrow night. We did, we, Karen and I have got a special program we're putting to, uh, we'll be, we've been working on, we're going to put it together and we're going to play it tomorrow. So don't forget, I'm going to go live tomorrow. I just want to give you a, a, a reminder of that. But the, the, the people, the, you know, the people here in South Carolina are just such wonderful people. I mean, it's the Southern hospitality. It's the, it's, you know, the plantations, it's the old grave cemeteries. As you go through these, these back roads, you know, these old country roads and you look over and you see the cemetery and you stop and you get out and there's, you know, these headstones. And it reminded me so much of, you know, the revolutionary cemeteries in, in Boston. And this was an area here that was pretty heavy during the revolution and the civil war, of course. Yeah. And yeah. folks forget that, right. They think that this part of the, the country was only, dealing with the civil war but no there was there was a lot of civil um revolutionary stuff going here in sullivan's island cornwall was on that side and that's the movie that mel gibson that is based off of his movements here in the in this great country so there is just so much going on but i gotta tell you the other side of this you go into hampton county where the murdoch's Murdoch's, Murdoff, <laughs> Murdeck. It depends on what accent or how you pronounce it and who you're talking to and how they pronounce it back. You go into that area and you realize, let me get this right. This family name has been in here for about a hundred years. And three solicitors, which are basically the district attorneys, for out forever in that area. And that family built a dynasty. That dynasty, Karen and I are finding out, is connected to so many names, places, and events. And there's a correlation uh, between what I have, I'm calling it addiction, desperation, okay, and greed. And you see this dynasty connected to all three of those principles. And you realize when you start, you know, you, you start looking into this, you know, the, the sweet girl, Mallory Beach, who was, you know, killed in the boat accident, Murdoch's name. Uh, a young man by the name of Stephen Smith, Murdoch name. The housekeeper, Murdoch name. And all of these, I mean, there's, and that's just, the, that's just the tip of the iceberg. And what's interesting is when you start looking into them and you start realizing, hey, wait a minute. The way that was handled is almost a carbon copy of how this was handled. This particular case that we're going to talk about tonight with Maggie and Paul. There are, I mean, and you can't script this, right? And that's everybody, if you didn't notice, that's Bud behind me. He's behind the home pillow back there. You can just barely see his legs uh, popping out. And if you're not, uh, 
if you've not been here before, this is uh, Mr. Buddy. He runs the house here. And but if if you if you weren't paying close attention to some of the testimony recently, where you the solicitor or the defense attorney is a senator here in South Carolina. He's he's a senator in the legislation up here. And when you start hearing, you know, so special agent, such and such, senior agent sled, right? And this almost, you know, lower your glasses, talk down to this investigator on the stand. It's as almost you get this sense of interesting, really interesting what's happening behind the scenes. So have you had a chance to, to, I know you're a extremely busy woman. Have you had a chance to catch any of this going I have. on I've, here? I, I have, I've, I've read on some of that. I've caught it every now and then. Um, and I, it is interesting. In fact, I couldn't help but think of the OJ Simpson case. Cause if you remember, the traveling in the car and the blood and all this other stuff. And I'm thinking, well, we've come beyond that. We're handling the evidence now is not, should not be an issue because that was the biggest issue in the OJ Simpson case. But I have read on it and, you know, there's, there's, you know, three, you know, there's basically three basic theories sometimes. Um, and that is, you know, police do the best they can. And sometimes it might not go as well as they want. And we all have, um, you know, the armchair quarterbacks that are going to tell you how to do it and the best way to do it. Because I know, tell you've been there and you've been under that, it's really hard to understand the pressure you're under and, and the help you have and, and working as a team and everything else. And so they try to do the best job. And, and so there's a lot of scrutiny sometimes. And I've noticed in this case, uh, that's been one of the things, you know, where they were saying, you know, things weren't handled right on the get go. Now, possibly, you know, that because of what happened and everything else, how it was handled. I don't know the whole story. We don't know if it was because he was such a, you know, Alec was such a, a high profile, um, esteemed member of the community and his family for so long. So would they do that? No, you know, you could not imagine that this fine family would ever do this. And then there's the other uh, part, you know, where we want to kind of sit back and, and uh, second guess everything uh, from the forensic evidence to the digital evidence to the to the uh, financial evidence, all this stuff. So as I'm following this case and I'm watching it, I'm thinking there's a lot of circumstantial evidence. There really is. And um, that, you know, that has to be taken. That that cannot be ignored. That has to be um, um, looked at uh, from the circumstantial. Our problem here is they're family members, they're related. Everyone, you know, seems to be related. And so we have to look at what else is there we can look at. So there, there's a lot that uh, the SLED has got to look at, the lab, you know, the, their uh, crime lab. There is uh, a lot that the police have to look at. There's so many different moving parts to this. 
And so you just can't take one and say, oh, this is this is the magic one. This is the key uh, or it's it's this or that. You have to take it all together. And so this is what we're looking at right now is we have got to look at it as a puzzle piece that we're putting together a little at a time. A lot of twists and turns, like you said, Chris, there's a lot of and there's a lot of questions. Why are there so many deaths related, you know, and what's going on in this family? And so from what I'm understanding um, is and this this really stood out to me. Now, I, I don't know what the actual numbers are, but uh, he uh, Alex had, had uh, said that he had a sixty thousand dollar a week drug habit. Okay, let's talk about that. Who does $60,000 a week and let, you know, all by themselves? You know, right. there's more to this than meets the eye. It's not, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to, you know, this is what I'm going to do. $60,000, I'm going to use that. You know, he, he'd be a dead man. There's just, you know, I, I've seen enough well, of and that. The, and the irony in that is he allegedly was writing his drug dealer checks. <laughs> yeah. I mean, but but then again, think about what drugs do. You don't think straight when you're on drugs. You don't think straight, and you become desperate sometimes, and things uh, start, you know, um, kind of not making sense. Who who makes checks out to your drug dealer? You know that if you're trying to hide a crime, why would you do that? Right, and and if that drug dealer is connected to a cartel or mm-hmm. some sort, I mean. That's that's an investigator's dream. Let me get this right. We we have checks, you know, <laughs> you know, connecting all of the dots here, uh, and so yeah. Okay, so the the other piece of this uh, puzzle here, uh, I thought the prosecution this week. Um, I'm going to call the defense right now. Gone with the win. W-I-N, because, you know, they started off with, con, you know, just condescending nature. And as you know, whenever you don't have something, you attack either the evidence or you attack the investigators. And those investigators are already getting... Uh, a run for their money. And and what's really interesting here is if you look at how there's a there's going to be a correlation here and I and I want to tell folks uh when you go over and you listen to the murder podcast there on Mandy's channel. The correlation that I'm already seeing between the Smith death and these deaths is how the narratives were handled. There's, you know, the there's information that Alex and his brother showed up at four o'clock in the morning, where this young uh, boy who is gay is found in the middle of the street in the middle of this country road, and. All of a sudden, the Murdochs show up at four in the morning, and the you know that's that's kind of like you know a huge red flag, right from the get go, and it's almost as if okay, come on under the tape, they're here, and next thing you know, it that case goes away. 
until these two murders occur and now sled most recently opened that case up stephen smith is this young man's name and i think that young man needs to have justice come his way as well do you uh you kill maggie did i kill my wife no while it's natural to repeat the question liars are often repeat verbatim is ex absolutely we call that parroting absolutely all right, so let's get into some DNA because I've got the world-renowned DNA expert in front of me. And guys and gals, if you've never met Francine, you are in for a, an amazing treat this, this evening. And ask your questions uh, because she is a wealth of information. In fact, when you hear about the Bardol method that these uh, criminalists testify uh, about, well, that's this young lady right over here next to me. And so she is amazing. And so we're going to talk DNA. And so, Francine, I, I'm just going to kind of tee up a couple of concepts here. Okay. Uh, and the first one is, you know, let's talk about methods used to collect and analyze. And then how reliable are those methods? All right. Well, it, it, first of all, it would really be determinant on what you're collecting, okay? So let's stick with this case for a minute. Um, blood evidence seems to be a big thing in this case. And this is why, you know, I kind of look at it a little bit like the OJ is, you know, um, should you have blood on you? Shouldn't you, you know, what's kind of blood is it? Let's decide whose it is. And so in this case, the blood would be very probative from the standpoint he would have blowback or he'd have something, you know, on his clothing when this happened, because the, this was a shotgun. Okay. And that I, I've been to many crime scenes where shotguns have been used and it's a very messy crime scene. And I'm sure Chris, you've, you've done the same and you know how bad those are. So the odds of having blood on clothing are pretty high, especially if it's at fairly close range. So, um, we would have to, to look at that blood. You couldn't just swab for DNA. You want to know about whose blood is, is on these items or whose blood is, is around. Well, there was, as I recall, there was blood on a shirt that belonged to Alex. Let's see, Murdow? Is that how you say it, Murdow? Well, he actually pronounced it Murdat. Oh, Murdoff Mur seems to be. Murdoff. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so there was some blood there. Now, certainly, you know, boy, what, what's this from? I mean, not everybody walks around with blood all over their shirt, you know, spatter on it. Okay. And so, um, you know, he, he claims to have been there and tried to, you know, felt their pulse and, and tried to help or whatever he did. However, depending on how that is, and a blood spatter expert, you know, would be good at this. Uh, what kind of blood spatter is it? Is it high velocity? Is it just little drops? What what is it? Uh, is it is it something that he wiped on his shirt? What you know? What did that look like? But they did do some presumptive testing. Now presumptive testing for blood is we're presuming it's blood. Okay, so they did that, and yes, yes, it was blood, and that's usually what we do out in the field. Um, we the lab usually is the one that will do the confirmatory testing, but out in the field, we do presumptive. 
And so the presumptive test was, yes, it's blood. And they, they handled that, I think, well. They get back to the lab, and then they did a confirmatory test on it to see if it's human blood. Because, you know, you can have all kinds of blood. And is this human blood? And it turned out that it is not human blood. And I've had cases where that has happened. And so that's, that's uh, I think they alluded that might have been from fishing or something like that is what I understood. So uh, it, it wasn't human blood. Now, I my question, and, and you have to do that because how are you going to say, if you just swabbed the shirt and said, oh yeah, we have DNA on it. Well, we want to know where's that DNA from, especially in this case. Is it from blood or is it from touch DNA? If it's from touch DNA and they're living together, there's a, they, then their, their DNA should be shared if they're living together, if they're, you know, residing together. And so there's always, you know, that's, that's secondary transfer that happens. And so that was kind of a, a difficult thing for them. Now, I don't know, uh, maybe Chris, you could help me on this. What um, happened to his clothes? I, I, as I recall, he said some, he told, I believe the housekeeper not to say anything about the clothes that he had well, on that night or something. Yeah. So the, the time frame, uh, which is part of what we're going to break down tomorrow as well. Um, so there's like a gap, a huge gap, right? So the, mm -hmm. the, the investigators have absolutely sewn this time frame up very, very careful. And then we have all of his uh, clothing uh, missing right after that time frame. But we see earlier uh, his son had taken a Snapchat video. And he's in a he's in a pair of khakis and a um, I think it's a Columbia shirt. That that stuff has disappeared, and he shows up that night after going to his mom's house or the Alameda property. And he's got on a pair of shorts and a t-shirt, and that's the clothing he was wearing when he called nine one one. So the other well, he clothing, changed clothes prior to call, calling nine one one. Right. And he may have even taken a shower. Yeah. He had enough time to do that back at the house because the housekeeper mm -hmm. testified that there was, you know, some clothing on the floor. Um, right. I'm going to try to so the, change. I, and I got, I'm sorry. I got the, I've got the sun going down. <laughs> so I'm going to take this off. I'm sorry, you guys. It's, okay. it's, uh, it's not dark where I'm at yet, but it's getting there. Okay. Is that a okay. little bit better? Yeah. I don't know. Yep. All right. Put it, I'm trying. Put it, uh, you, you look great. You look great. And then so uh, you may want to move it over to the other side to where it's uh, a little. Let me brighter. let me go. I'm going to shut that curtain. Can you hang on? Of course. Just well, you do that, right. I'll, uh, I'll, I'll answer this or grab this. Is it silly for the defense to make a big deal with foreign DNA under Maggie's funerals? You know, this is a really good point. Uh, but what they're trying to oh wow look at that it's like the light came there into was the light <laughs> so they're making a big deal out of uh you know they have foreign blood male or excuse me foreign dna right. male underneath her fingernails and she had just come back from you know some fingernail appointments and etc so they're in my opinion they're just trying to muddy the waters just trying to muddy the waters Right. Uh, so go ahead. Finish well, your thought. Well, my thought is, was there defense wounds? 
And I don't think there was. No, there wasn't. And so, and, and also, is she left-handed? Is she right-handed? If you're going to defend yourself, that's going to make a difference. Am I going to defend with my right, my left? Where's my strongest hand? And usually you'll find defense wounds will be on the hand that you use the most. Um, and and there could be other, you know, reasons why there is. Um, so that that is a hard one, but um, I think you're right. It, you know, let's muddy the water. We have to look at the totality of everything. And like I said, the blood... They're, what they've done is they have basically, they've broken things down into, to, as far as the evidence, into three categories. We have the forensic evidence. Okay, what forensic evidence do we have? Let's talk about that forensic evidence. Blood, there's blood all over there. I mean, if, if you were to shoot someone, I got to tell you, you go into a scene and, and you have boots on or you have shoes on or something, something as messy as that you might have some on the bottom of your shoes. Uh, you would probably have it on your person, on your clothing. So blood has got to be one of their biggest things. They said they found blood on the steering wheel um, that uh, belonged to, um, was it Maggie and uh, Paul? Yep. And so... Yeah, Alex, I think it's a mixture. A mixture, yeah. It and so, yeah. yeah. And so it, so it's a mixture. Um, and, and so his claim is, well, I, I checked them and, 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 and my hands touched them. And then I got into my car, you know, but still that is circumstantial evidence still, you know, even though he's claiming that still something that has to be taken. Now we can't find the clothes. Where do they go? It's awfully strange that you feel the need to change your clothes before you call police. You know, what, what kind of behavior is that? Why the hour wait? Why telling your housekeeper? So that's circumstantial and you want to bring that all together. But as far as the blood goes, they got to start digging and finding stuff, uh, you know, just about anything that they can. Um, so you have, you have the rifle. I think they've, they've gone ahead and they have the rifle. The other thing is um, they, I believe from what I understand that Paul, the son was shot twice, once in the chest and then uh, in the back, isn't that, or the head? Was it the well, head? Yeah, it was the or, head? yeah, the round went up through the back of the yeah. head, the shotgun blast. Yeah. Right. And then Maggie, uh, his wife, was shot, I think, four or five times. Okay. So we got to look at these shotgun shells. Now, my question is because this is good evidence, somebody loaded that gun. And who loaded that gun and who had it? And this could be really important. It, I think blood is your number one forensic evidence. That's what you got to go after. But if you can't find that, it's not on his shoes. He probably got rid of everything. I don't know. I just have to look at the forensic evidence. The other one is those, sh those uh, shotgun shells. I've done really well with the Bardot method on shotgun shells. Um, you get good DNA off of those. I don't know how those were processed. I don't know what they've done. In the past, normally what they do with shell casings, shotgun shells, they'll try to get uh, fingerprints on them. Uh, they try, you know, they dust them with latent print powder. They fume them and things like that. So I have no idea. If they haven't fumed them, it would be good to do DNA testing on them. Um, and that's why I came up with that method was because I get good DNA off of them. Tell everybody what fuming means. Oh, fuming is like, so in order to stabilize a fingerprint... Okay, we're going to go after prints. We put it in a chamber. And if you know what super glue is, it's like you put a 
few drops of super glue on a little plate, you warm it up and then you have a water that forms a mist. It heats up and it forms a mist. And this mist will go onto the shell casings or whatever item of evidence you have, and it will stabilize it. And that super glue hardens and it uh, makes the print so you can, you can do dye stain with it. It's stable, you won't rub it off, it won't smear off or anything. And that's what fuming is. It's, it is uh, something that does not destroy DNA, but it encapsulates it. And so it kind of makes it really difficult to get what you want. Plus downstream, um, you know, they handle some places don't wear gloves downstream when it comes to casings, when they put it in Nibin, which is a, Nibin is a database for shell casings, okay? And sometimes they, they try to look at what the, the, the marks are on things. And so sometimes they wear gloves, sometimes they don't. But those shotgun shell casings are big, they're good, and that would be, a, that would be fantastic evidence because you're looking at, let's say, Four shots to Maggie, two shots to Paul. Okay. Now it's five, shot, five shots to Maggie. Five shots. Five to shots Maggie. to Maggie. Two to so seven. Seven total. Okay. Yeah. Who whose DNA is on there? That's some more good evidence. That's some more good evidence. Now we would expect his DNA should probably be on the firearm if that's his firearm. If he takes that out and he does things like that, yeah, you know. Um, you can also swab that firearm for uh, blowback, you know, uh, blood that's on the firearm, you know, from the barrel or the blowback on it. They did talk, talk about uh, gunshot residue, and it, it was on some items. I believe it was on a coat, wasn't it, gunshot residue? And the, the reason gunshot is still, I think gunshot re residue is very important still to look at. And a lot of uh, agencies aren't looking at that as much because Basically, um, we've been told that uh, it can be transferred very easily if someone's like if a police officer, you know, has been shooting or handling their gun or something and they touched a, a victim or a suspect or something that could be transferred on. But I think that you really have to look at the totality again. This is circumstantial evidence, but gunshot residue should not be ignored. It should not. And I'm glad that they took that and, and they and they tested for that. That's really important. And we've had cases where uh, people, they, they said, oh yeah, they committed suicide, you know, but there's no gunshot residue on their hands. You know, let's figure this one out. So there, there is some good evidence to be had from that firearm, but the, the, the shotgun shells, who loaded those? And why would you load so many? And did you always keep it loaded or did you did you, what was his practice? You know, did you, did you keep a loaded shotgun? Or well, did and you they, it's interesting you say that because that's where the prosecution went here. So they had multiple shotguns throughout the house and <laughs> in each of those shotguns, there was a, you know, like a bird shot or, and when I've talked we've talked about this on a couple of programs, but you know, bird shot has a lot of pellets in it. And then of course, then it's double lot, which is typically eight, nine pellets. Uh, and they're usually, you know, 32 caliber um, balls. And then when they hit you, they make all kinds of damage. Yep. In all shotgun loads. So it's, it, it's, uh, it, the sequence would be the double lot, 
or the the birdshot double lock butt buck so when you go up boom birdshot and why is that important because in that area out at there out there there's a lot of snakes there's a lot of animals there's a lot of you know turkeys there's a lot of things right and bears, so that, i think there's bears out there yeah. huh? i think there's bears out there too yeah i don't know probably you yeah, would south, yeah. south carolina there's there's i mean it's there's a lot going on here and then but anyway what that would do is it gives you the first shot just to kind of you know zing it and then the second shot you know bring it home and that's what paul got hit with and so th what the what the prosecution was trying to show and i think they did a great job doing it is that the consistency of those loads what are what are the odds of two strangers coming in because there's a two-gun theory from the defense right two, stra two strangers coming in and all of a sudden you know one guy with the uh ar type of weapon and the other guy with the shotgun both yeah. from the house or at least from the residence family guns um the odds of those have you ever had a case like that where two you know suspects came in fully loaded with the family weapons no right exactly no. yeah do we know did he keep them loaded though do we know that yeah, he lied. He lied to him about that particular question. No question about it. But what he did is he set Alex up, or excuse me, yeah, he said he set him up to tell him about the other shotguns in the house, and that's where uh, he got that information. So yeah, one hundred percent, Erna. Uh, and by the way, that's not illegal when you're investigating these types of crimes. It's it's usually not a good idea. Uh, but it is not illegal to use trickery in relationship to gain the truth. Um, yeah. So, yeah, that's true. Okay. So next question here. Uh, to ensure the accuracy and the integrity of DNA in the, in the lab, um, how do you determine if a sample is suitable for analysis? What factors affect that? Okay. Well, first of all, you want to make sure, we'll go back to the O.J. Simpson case. Okay. When you collect evidence, you need to make sure you wear gloves because DNA is now the standard. And, and we wear masks. We wear gloves if you're going to collect for DNA. And you have to package it right. And you have to have a chain of custody. Chain of custody is very important. That's what, that's what really messed up the O.J. case. So we've gotten past that now. And we know that's the rules and that's the way it goes. Okay, so you, you package things, you, you take them back, and, and you, you keep a log, a, a chain of custody log, and the evidence you've collected, and where you collected from. You take photographs. There's documentation. There's, there's, uh, they now can do, uh, uh, you do the sketches, or you can have the automatic where they can scan the crime scene where all the evidence is laying, and they put the numbers there. So it's very detailed. And when you have that, you don't, you seal this out, you seal the evidence, you don't open it unless you make a report or you say why you had to open and, and breach that evidence sack or box. Anything with DNA should be in paper, whether it's a box or a sack, because if you put it in plastic, then you're going to end up with uh, problems. And so anyway, um, once that's done, you need to take it, you, you will take it to the lab, um, you'll submit it to the lab for DNA testing. Now, 
This is a really good question from the standpoint of that it's very important to know what items would be the most probative to collect for DNA evidence. And the bottom line is anything that's porous. If it's porous and the suspect touched it, you can get DNA from it, all right? Uh, smooth items of evidence are usually for fingerprints and porous items with ridges, with you know, uh, whether it's a rock, it doesn't matter what it is, it traps DNA in it, okay? And so when you're looking at the scene and you're looking at what's going on, you want to, to note what is there, what is out of place, what you need to collect, and then you will collect that and submit that. Um, one of the biggest things is getting the standards or the buccal swabs or samples from suspects and victim so that when you have DNA, you know who does that belong to. Okay, because you need to know who it belongs to. And I'm sure they have everybody's. I, I'm sure they have a lot of suspect samples, a lot of yeah, DNA they, that they're Yeah, one of the theories was going to be that this was a narcotics hit. And so uh, the prosecution swabbed numerous narcotic dealers around that circle, uh, which kind of eliminated them from that circle right away. Uh, so well, they, they, they beat yeah. the defense to the to the punch. Go ahead. Not, not to say narcotics might not have been an issue that brought this all about. Right. But um, I I I don't think that you know because they've kind of you know from what you're saying have ruled that out. So you know I I think that's that's important. Uh, but that blood and the DNA from the the um, shotgun shells are their biggest items of evidence um, and the clothing. I don't know if what happened to that clothing. Um, I don't know if he threw it away, if he burned it, if he buried it, have no idea. Don't know where that is. So this question, does laundering completely remove all DNA from clothing? No, no, it can't, you know, cause you can still get it even though even depends, you know, on how it's laundered and what's laundered with, but you have, you can have secondary transfer, but it doesn't get rid of everything. It, you know, it, it doesn't. And so we, you know, that's been something that's been brought up in court a lot of times. And, and so you know, it doesn't get it, you don't get as good a results, but it doesn't get rid of it totally. Uh, my thought, Amanda, on the ATV tire tread, the blood, or excuse me, the mud, I think she was leaning against that at some point. And my theory is that, you know, Paul's obviously in the, in the feed shed. Mm -hmm. And just as the recreationist, you know, laid out there, he takes, Alex takes that first shot at him. I still believe that AR had a sling. And he's got that weapon either on the ATV, which is, in my opinion, still within play here. Uh, and... Either he's got the weapon nearby so he can get to it quickly or he's got it on a sling, but he's a tall guy. And I, I saw the, you know, I'm going to call him hooligan, the defense attorney. You know, he was kind of, you know, ducking down and, and making a big theatric, you know, move in front of the um, jury. And Paul, though, or excuse me, Alex, though, is is pretty... All he has to do is stand there at his hip, boom, and boom, 
and then pull up with the AR, my feeling is mom was moving towards Paul. Mom was coming in to save her son. Wasn't he in the doorway uh, at that point of the feed? He was trying to move out. Yeah, he was trying to he was trying to get to the right when the second round went off. So that means the shooter was off to the right and the ejection port sent that round the uh, shell casing out and it ricocheted and went underneath the door. Both of them went under the door in the shed. Yeah. So, and the stippling is within three feet. They're saying uh, the medical examiner testified. And so I think it's a natural swing for him to either turn, grab the gun off of the uh, ATV, and sh and Maggie's kind of hanging loose, maybe over by the other where the other shed is, where she was shot. And as she starts to move, boom, 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 right. boom, boom, and he is advancing on her, and he circles her and boom, coup de gras while she's down. I think this guy, if he is the, if he's convicted, uh, this is one cold homicide. This this is really, really one horrible way to well, die. Well, I, I, one of my questions is, you know, since there's such large ties to the community here, why it's being tried there? That is another great question. Well, it's actually the county over. I mean, it's Hampton, well, let's call it in county. Right, Karen? It, call it where the uh, courthouse is? Call it, right? Colleton County, Walterboro. Yeah, Colleton County, Walterboro. So Hampton is where they live, and Colleton is the neck, is the dividing county. So they've kind of moved it over, and, and the people there are much different than they are in Hampton. The Murdochs run Hampton. I mean, there's no question about that. But they, they don't necessarily run where this courthouse is so this this jury uh may be not as sympathetic and i think there are eight women and four men uh, and i think yeah. any woman you know i think the moms are going to hopefully um you know we'll, we'll see what happens but that's how i think this thing went down i i i really do i the two gun theory there are no two shooters i it is a one gun you know, or one person, two guns. And it's been oh, done before many times. But like I said, you need to dig is you, you got, you got to really dig into this. Um, mm -hmm. Let's keep in mind. What were Alex habits on handling the gun when he went hunting? You know, you, you usually, you, you put it on your, your strap, you know, you, you don't want to drop, you don't want to get hung up onto something or whatever else. Okay, and you're walking or whatever else. When you brought it home, when you typically now think there may be a lot of guns in the house, but typically, did you leave them loaded when you put them in? Did you unload them? What were your habits? You know, did did what were his habits? Because if those guns were typically unloaded and then placed wherever he placed them, then the odds of those those rounds having just his dna because he loaded it are high he's the one that put those seven rounds in 
He did it. Okay. Why would he do, why would he have those many rounds if that wasn't his habit? So you got to get into the habit. You got to get in. This is a great profiling case. Have they done any profiling on this? Um, no, I mean, we, Greg and everybody, we've all talked about it behind the scenes, of course, but they didn't have uh, anybody brought into it to know from the BAU or anything. That, that might be yeah. fine because, I mean, it, it's really, it, this one is not a lot of rocket science. The, the, the trick here is outdoing the political moves. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the defense team, I've never had a, I never had a case. I don't know if you ever had a case where you go into a hunting lodge, for an example, to interview and they're all sitting there and they are a room full of lawyers and not one lawyer, a room full of lawyers. And what's the testimony? They were talking about the timeline and how they're going to, you know, just as friends, you know, help. And, and then you have this other situation where a lawyer runs the, the scenario over a telephone no, you can't talk, you know, we'll talk to you and, we'll, and he's going to confess to all of this, but I'm going to run the interview. And, you know, this is Florida living word salad. That's exactly right. Word salad. And so as you sort through that word salad and you take it to the dessert buffet, then you realize what's going on here. And this is when it's important, I hope, the jury to catch how condescending the hooligan is to the professionals talking about this case because they really believe they've got it sewn up. Yeah. And maybe because in other cases, you know, everybody gets together and it's like, okay, you get that one person over there. Right. But who shows up at Stephen Smith's homicide scene at four o'clock in the morning? And it's a, it's an alleged car accident. And all of a sudden, two of the Murdoch family members are underneath the tape standing over this dead boy's body. And right. guess what? There's a ton of rumors and information interviews where that name, family name, came up even in that one. Yeah. Who shows up the night of Mallory? Her death, they show up at the hospital and start running the show. That's exactly right, Sandra. Alex does. And now Alex, Randy, his brother, the two Murdoff attorneys, some of them, they seem to just show up around dead people. Well, yeah, they do. And, and, you know, look, they had a lawsuit. Don't forget the housekeeper. Uh, he didn't pay off. They had to pay that off. Yeah. And what right. was that? How much was that? Uh, it's a lot. A lot. As I, I recall, it was a lot. You know? Well, after they stole it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. And, and the other thing that we, we can't forget that comes into play too, is the digital evidence. There are some great digital evidence 
from what I'm reading, there's some good stuff with the timelines on that. And that's, that's a big thing that that's those GPS. I'll tell you what, those, that digital evidence is going to play a big part. Oh, yeah, the footprint, the digital footprint. And that's what our show is going to be about tomorrow. You're that's way great. ahead of me. That, oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> because that, that's exciting. Okay. Stuff. I mean, we, we, we bring all the pieces together. So when we're looking at, we, we want to look at the blood. We want to look at the firearm. We want to look at the casings. Uh, we want to look at the clothing, if possible, if we can figure out where it's at or what happened to it. Those are things we have to start unraveling and finding out what's going on. Um, and um, another thing, um, I, I don't know what all evidence was found at that scene. I have no idea. I don't know what it all is, but I'll bet you there's some good stuff there. And for example, if there was a fight, we I have a case where, where a necklace was pulled off somebody and um, DNA from the suspect was on the chain, got it off the Bordeaux method, got it off. That's what helped, you know, solve that case. And um, so we, we, we want to start putting the puzzle pieces from the forensic evidence, then the puzzle pieces for the digital, because that can lead you to other things. Okay. And then you have, <laughs> And you brought it up earlier about making out a check, you know, to your drug dealer, the financial end. What in the heck is going on with somebody that is that talented, that good? Uh, and the family has so much money. They're able to do all these things. What is happening that that brought it to where it's at? Because it didn't just happen. Like you said, there's a trail and, it, and it's been it's it's just it's just increased as it's gone on, because you've been able, once you get away with something and you think you can continue to get away, you keep doing it and doing it and doing it. So there's just something going on. That's a lot deeper than what we know. And it, it's something that I think if, if it's dug into enough and, and they keep, you know, putting those pieces together, that they're going to be, there's going to be some questions that have to be answered. Well, I'm hoping that the Stephen Smith family reaches out uh, to the cold case foundation because we will put a wall of experts together, non-biased, not connected to that county or that area. And it's free for the mother. You can't get better than free. And they're experts. They're forensic experts that are doing this because they care about solving a case. They want to help the family. They want to help law enforcement. And you can't get better than that. So there's no excuse, really. Yeah, and and just so everybody knows, let me explain how that works. And Francine uh, is part of the foundation as well. So what we do is we put together uh, a wall of experts. Let's say you need a, an accident recreationist. Uh, we have them in the meeting. Let's say you need a, um, a forensic specialist about DNA. Francine comes to the meeting blood spatter. We have those people and we have all, we have forensic psychologists, doctors, uh, you know, Larry Simon right now is in the prison system, uh, on the, the West coast interviewing. Uh, I think he's working with Ridgeway right now, Gary Ridgeway. And, um, so what happens is the family comes or the attorneys or whoever, and they do a case presentation. And then that case presentation goes to our analyst 
and we have many analysts. And what they do is they narrow it down to priorities. And then typically one of us is assigned as a case agent to that family. And I can share it now because I can't talk about it as Francine knows, but you know, I've, I was embedded with the Michael Vaughn case for three months as, as part of the Cold Case Foundation working alongside that agency. So if SLED wanted other reasons, then that is an option. But if the family wanted it, this is what we do in the foundation. And so I would love to see the Smith case get reopened because Karen and I looked at that yesterday and scratched our heads and yeah. said, there's, there's more to this one. So let, let me ask you this question here about what are the limitations of DNA analysis and what are some potential sources of error? Well, I'm not a DNA analyst. So we do have one on the Cold Case Foundation, but I'm not an analyst. So what I do is I collect the DNA, the skin cells, the touch DNA off of items of evidence. And so that's what I do. One of the biggest issues that you will find um, are mixtures. Okay. And we do have, there is software to unmix the mixtures and it's getting better and better. It really is. And uh, so that's something that often plagues a lot of cases. In fact, there's probably a lot of cold cases that have been closed because they were inconclusive because there's too many mixtures. They should revisit those because those can be redone and they need to look at that. Um, and so making sure that you collect the good evidence, good evidence is going to be what has the highest probability that the suspect touched this item and Let's see if we can get DNA from that. So you want to, the, the, it all begins at the crime scene and how you process that and, and having the knowledge. And, and SLED is, it, the, SLED's a great lab. It really is. It's a good lab. And um, I, I know they have the knowledge on a lot of stuff, but there are some technologies out there that labs can't afford. Are, are some labs have it, some labs don't. And so one of the things I do want to bring out um, I, before I forget that this part is it's part of the cold case foundation. It's part of, of crime labs. It's part of private labs. If we can work together as a team and not, not have be so egocentrical that we think we have all the answers, but reach out to each other, reach out to those that have the ability to help us. Cases would get solved a lot sooner and with, you know, a, a, a lot higher probability of getting the evidence that you need for that case. And so when you turn in evidence, you want to make sure it's good stuff from the scene. OK. And then, um, in fact, you know, I'll talk to somebody and they'll say, yeah, we went after the blood spatter. And and I'll say, well, you know, that's great. But, you know, you had a couple of items that nobody could have touched but the suspect. And I would have done those for sure. You know, those had been the first things I'd have done because we know the suspect had to have touched this. The suspect had to have handled that. The blood, that's a good one too. But let's start with what we know the suspect handled. And so knowing that at the crime scene is very important. And if you don't know it, then reach out to somebody that does know it. 
I mean, we, I help, I do, I do free consultations all the time. If somebody has a question, I can, I'll answer them. I'll tell them. I don't charge for that. I let them, I'll, I'll turn them over to somebody. If I don't have the answer, I'll, that's that I'll turn them over to somebody that can help them. It's working together as a team. Once we do that and we, and we are able to get that evidence into the lab or to the best technology, because like I said, there are different technologies some labs have better ones. Some have more innovative ones. You just got to know that. You you need to know that. And that's hard to figure out. That's why we have Cold Case Foundation. That's why we have people out there to help you. And then um, there's two ways of, of doing DNA. We do the traditional methods, which has been used for many years. And that is where, you know, we try to get the DNA. You need to have so much DNA in order to get a good profile and to enter it into CODIS, which is the DNA database. You have to have so much. Now what's coming on board is called next generation sequencing. And this is where we can we can narrow things down with much don't need as much DNA. This is where we'll use uh, SNPs that's used for genealogical databases. This is where we can do everything in one run rather than have to do each test separately. So these are really these are really big things that are coming in uh, to the labs now, and this is really exciting. This is the way of the future is the next generation sequencing. Now it's going to take some time to get it all there, but it's going to happen. And the other thing is um, that a lot of people get confused about is they will say, well, what about the genealogical DNA databases? You know, why can't we, you know, uh, find out, you know, who this belongs to? Well, there's still some things that are still being worked out. Most of all, you need to have most of the time you need to have a single source. It can only be with one person. If you do have two sources and they have a major profile, then maybe they can vet that out and put that in a genealogical database. But know that traditional DNA processing is different than next generation sequencing processing, okay? And you you really have to kind of understand that, that there's going to be a major shift and a major change in this area, but things are coming way fast. I mean, from the time I started doing DNA to now, it's phenomenal how good things are getting and how much technology there is and how many people like me have come up with ways of doing something and having it, you know, reviewed by journals and seeing what happens. And, and we need to stay up on that. And laboratories need to be open to this, whether it's uh, state laboratories whether it's private laboratories, we need to be willing to help each other. We need to be willing to work as a team together. And this is one of the biggest conundrums we have because we still seem to want to say, oh, I'm going to solve this. Our agency can do it. We don't need the help. We can do this. And then you end up having a cold case, you know? And so those are big issues with DNA. So I have a question um, to stay in this track here, right? So we have you have a small, really source here, right? We've got a small source here. So um, I'm going to look for my question here for me. I wrote it down a little bit ago. Okay, here. So because you have a, a small amount, what are the limitations and what are the dangers in relationship to, like the defense wanted to check the shirt out, right? And there goes Bud knocking the pillows off. Well, you've got a little dog. I got a big one. I couldn't let him in. <laughs> well, he thinks he's a big dog in, yeah. a, in a Jack Russell body. Um, but what are the limitations and what are the dangers? Like the, the defense, you know, they made a big deal out of the shirt 
you know, there's nothing left. Okay. Walk us through, break that down. What exactly does that mean for the lay person? When they say there's nothing left on the shirt? Yeah, for them to test. So what they're talking about, what I'm assuming, now I can only assume, okay, when they say there's nothing left, I hear that all the time. Okay, if they're talking about the blood evidence and they have tested all the blood spatter and there's no more to be tested on that and the blood's coming back as animal or fish blood or whatever and there's nothing left, there is DNA on that shirt and I'm going to tell you that. And um, that's what the MVAC, that's one of the things I use. It's, it's something that sucks up the DNA out of the weave. So you can get DNA. I don't care what they swabbed. I don't care what they, they, they cut. If they use cuttings, if they use swabbings, you can still get DNA. And so you would want to look at that shirt. You'd want to see, you know, what it looked like on the person, you know, where it came from and everything else. And then you could use the MVAC. You can't say, well, this came from the blood or not, but you can say there is this person's DNA on the shirt. And so, okay, let's say there's Maggie's DNA on your shirt. Okay. And there's Paul's DNA on your shirt. Okay. So I don't, from my understanding, they were not together at this point in time. And she was staying at a beach house. And um, he was staying at their house. I don't know how long they had been um, not together for whatever reason. I'm not going to speculate. It's whatever reason. What are the odds? I mean, for example, I've done cases where they haven't been together for, you know, a few months. And so um, would their DNA, how often do you do your laundry, change your sheets, all this stuff with the, you know, what are the expectations of having DNA? But if it were me, I would, if they've done all the blood testing on this shirt, and if this was the, I don't know why this shirt, because it had blood on it. Is this what he's claiming he wore? I don't know which, you know, because we know he changed his original shirt. So the shirt that they're testing that had the fish blood on it, where did that come from? And why was he wearing it? And should, and should it or should it not have Maggie's DNA on it? or Paul's DNA, DNA on it. So you're saying, yeah, I could, but here's what I would do. I would do the front of that shirt with the MVAC. I'd want to know whose DNA is on the front of that shirt. Then I'd do the back of that shirt to see if the same DNA is on the back of the shirt that's on the front of the shirt. You know, what, what happened to the front of that shirt? Because I highly doubt that their blood would be, or their DNA would be on the back if, it, if, if this was a shirt that was part of that, you know, uh, crime. So that's what I would do. Um, I would definitely, but that's why I say the blood evidence is really important, you know, to say, yeah, this blood belonged to Maggie and it was on the shirt. But what I'm hearing is this blood belonged to a fish. And so we don't have any uh, victim DNA on the shirt. That's what I'm hearing. Okay. So um, when, um, I guess then that comes to the next question, right? Can can DNA uh, evidence definitively prove that somebody is guilty, or are there other factors that need to be considered? Help oh. people understand that from your position, right? Okay, yeah. So so you know, there's a lot of cases I've done where it's clear cut. You know, we you know we you got the blood, you got their you know their DNA on it that shouldn't have been there or whatever. This is a tricky one because they were married. They were husband and wife and father and, and they, they had a relationship. So 
you have to take all the other pieces of evidence, um, even even if it, it's it's not it, it's not something that really points the arrow. You have to bring them all together. All these little pieces have to come together, not just the DNA, but the digital. And and what was their lifestyle? What were their habits? What happened? This is where you dig and you dig and you figure out. You know, this is you know, this this is no longer just. Uh, evidence hearsay or whatever else. We have proof that this happened the digital. We have proof that this happened on the DNA. We have proof that he was he was busy, you know, whatever he was doing with the money or whatever else. You bring all those pieces together. And it's amazing how when you put the puzzles together, it, it's a very clear picture. Now you do have to be careful because there are people that have been put in prison and been have admitted to guilt and everything that that really weren't. And um, and you do have to be careful, but you have to bring the totality of it together, and then you have to let the jury decide. But there's it, just you, know, you may have answered it just there because that was my next question. Uh, how how does one handle a case where DNA evidence appears to be exculpatory and what steps are taken to ensure the, that innocent individuals are not falsely accused or convicted, but it's sound, you, you kind of got ahead of me on that one. So, um, it, it, but in this case, right, he, he has created the narratives here. That's what I find fascinating about this case. And, and I think it's getting lost in the weeds with the jury and by the way the jury is not taking they're not allowed to take notes the the for some reason and that was kind of interesting in of itself i i've not seen a jury that didn't have a notebook but this jury apparently they don't have a notebook and so that in of itself can confuse i mean just look at all the twists and turns we're having just in this this wonderful chat with all of our amazing, you know, people that are here tonight, uh, and look at the different opinions. Um, can you imagine what these jurors are going to go through when they're when they're tucked away? It, uh, it, it's gonna it's gonna be really really hard for them. I, I I wouldn't want to be them. It would be very difficult. But like I said, this is where you got to put the pieces together and and the notes. Yeah. You, you, it, this is unbelievable, but those notes help you so that when you're sitting there in that room with the jury, you have what you heard and you don't just have your own perspective. You have what everybody else heard and you bring it together and see, were we on the same page? Did we hear this right? Is this, is this correct? What I understood for, they said, you need to have that to, to, to come to a good decision and not being able to take notes really limits them. And it puts them, it kind of binds their hands a little bit. Yeah, I mean, it's. I had a caper one time. Uh, one of the first, I had three juries. It was a multi defendant case. And so they wanted to be tried together. So each one was entitled to their own jury. We literally had 45 <laughs> jury members mm. sitting in different parts of the courtroom. Yeah. I was on the stand. Uh, uh, for like four and a half days, just every day, eight hours, 10 hours, just nonstop. Yeah. Because with all of those jurors came all of those attorneys for the defense. And they had notebooks in every trial I've ever pretty much been involved in. They, The jury's allowed to have notebooks and, you know, they're 
taking notes and but they have to leave them every single night you know when the court dismisses them and they sequester right. them they're supposed to leave them they they can't leave the courtroom but they can take them back but in this case there's so many details uh to remember just like angela says uh, i'm worried about that uh, i'm a little concerned I'm, I'm a little worried about that that the closing argument setting up the closing argument here now is going to have to be critical because just these nuances of talking about the DNA on the steering wheel, for an example, he planted the narrative that he went over and he rolled Paul over his son to check him. Yet he also says that I witnessed that his brain was not attached to his body laying next to him. And when I rolled him over, the phone popped out and then he picked up the phone and then he thought, well, maybe I shouldn't pick up the phone and put that down. I, I think that's a bunch of hooey uh, because the other side of me says, okay, well, why didn't you go over and roll your wife over? She, she shot too. Why not go check her the same way you just checked your son whose brain's laying next to I have I have never been to a case, and I've been plenty of shotgun cases. I've, I've been to plenty. Uh, suicides, homicides. And I'm going to tell you, I don't think I've ever been to one where the brain, because a, a shotgun can just, you know, obliterate. And I've never been where somebody's rolled somebody over when Amen. the top of their head's missing or whatever to see if they're still alive. Never been it, to that. It, it just, it DLR, right? Does not look yeah. right. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Yep. It, yep. And and then and by the way, there's 17 seconds, uh, as Donna points out, there's 17 seconds that yeah, that he has to do this. And but I think it, it's it's it is it's a, as True Girl says, it's a brutal massacre, and and I think that tell telling sign here is where he did not go over to his sweet wife. Whether we liked her or not, right? I mean, in the community and whatever, she still was just gunned down with an AR. And those rounds are horrific. Yeah. They're they're they they really do a lot of damage. Do a lot of damage. So let me ask you uh, another question about DNA real fast. How do you stay up to date with the latest advancements? I mean, you always seem to be cutting edge here with your forensic science. How do you do it? Well, I started staying up to date when I worked for law enforcement um, because one of the biggest problems we had was, you know, they're, they're, you have your investigators, your detectives, and they rotate out about every five years or so, okay? And when they rotate out, they just move on to their job and the next one who takes it over has to, you know, kind of put things together. And oftentimes uh, they didn't know what was available and they didn't know what the DNA reports meant. And they didn't know how do we submit this? What do we do? And so I kind of, I had a chief that uh, I kind of worked as a liaison between um, the, the uh, police department and the lab. And so what would happen is the detective and I would go over what evidence we felt was the most probative to send to the state lab. And you want to make sure because they're inundated. They, they, they have a lot of work to do. I mean, they truly are inundated. And so we want to try to make it as easy as we can for them, you know, so that, that we give the most probative evidence. They don't want to take out 40 pieces of evidence. They want the most probative. And so we work on that. 
And then um, we'd have a meeting if it was a homicide with the lab and say, this is why we're submitting this, da, da, da. And then once they finished it, uh, the DNA testing, and we got the lab report because they email you the lab report, then I would go over that. I learned how to, to understand these reports. I'm not a DNA analyst, but I know how to look at the reports and I know how to tell what we have. And so I would go over the detective. I said, this is what we have and this is what we need to do now uh, to move it ahead. And I started talking to people in private labs, different state labs. Uh, people were involved in new technologies. I, they have seminars all the time. They have trainings all the time. Uh, I have friends that they will look, new, new technologies will sometimes come, you know, to, the, to talk about it and they'll want to know and they'll reach out and say, would you, you know, what do you think about this? And I keep up on it through, through just my networking. You have to network. And, and, and a good example is a cold case foundation. If they were to look at all the forensic specialists there are, they'd be amazed at how much help there is there because there are so many people that want to help and there's such great technologies and you come together as a team instead of staying in your four walls. And this is all we have. And we have to work with what we have right here. You need to, to broaden your scope and you need to get different eyes. You need to get different people involved in network. And so that, cause you'll run into somebody, they'll say, you know what? I have a bunch of hair that, that we got off of, this suspect, but there was no root. And so that's all we have. And there's nothing we can do about it. Oh, yes, there is. Guess what? There's a new technology for the hair without root that you, they can get DNA from. And, and, and it's really good. You only need one or two hairs now. You don't need a lot. And oh, really, what is that? This is what happens in group discussions. This is what happens, you know, when we sit down and we do a case, Chris, this is what happens. We talk about this. And it's not just a happens in a second or, you know, a, a day, sometimes new issues come up and we have to find out what is. So you, that's how you find out. You have to you have to have somebody on your side, a liaison. We look to our state labs to do it, but they're so busy and they don't have all the technologies. So you should really have somebody in your department that's kind of that person that kind of looks out for that. Is that liaison between you and the lab and the technologies? That isn't a hard thing. Yeah, I mean, that's Fascinating. And one of the other question uh, question that came up a minute ago uh, was, can they still get DNA out of a washing machine? On a washing, in a washing machine? Uh, yeah, out of a washing machine. That's a great I, question. Yeah, I, I'm sure they could. I have not tried that. I have not done that. But I will say... I have had um, I have have evidence that has been in water for a, a long period of time that they wouldn't have think I shouldn't say days and days but a few days maybe that we have gotten DNA from uh, I've had DNA that has already been processed with the MVAC one time before and I was able to do it again same place and get get the same results and get more DNA so D DNA remember. DNA started out when I started uh, at about 2020, I think um, DNA in order to get a full profile of DNA, you needed a blood drop the size of a quarter. Okay. That's a lot. Okay. That's how we got our DNA needed that much to get a profile. Well now is to maybe, you know, three skin cells, you know, it, it's very small. It's the size of a pinhead now. And, and so you, you don't need a whole lot and things have changed so much. So yeah, what you think you might not get DNA on, I have had cold cases that have been processed by two and three other labs uh, that I've gotten results on. And um, it, it's, it's, you don't give up because it doesn't disappear. There's still stuff. As long as there's a weave, as long as there's a porous surface, it can embed. 
And, and skin cells are not these smooth little discs that slough off. Okay. They, they, yeah. stick, they stick in there. And so, in fact, we have a case uh, on the MVAC. Uh, I did not do this case, but uh, if you go to the MVAC uh, website, MVAC Systems website, they have a place if you look at news or events, they have all the cases that the MVAC has helped. And we had one years ago where it just so happened the um, medical examiner, uh, DNA really wasn't a big thing. And he says that this, we knew this person was killed and their head bashed in with a rock. He says, you should collect that rock. Now you remember, we hardly ever collect rocks back then because what good were they? You couldn't get DNA from, you couldn't get fingerprints. So we just took pictures of them, hardly ever collected them. Well, they collected this rock and years and years later, they were able to use the MVAC on this rock get the suspect's DNA and nail him. So you got to look at these cases and you got to say, you know what, there was this, you know, and we didn't tr try this because I'm telling you a lot of those cases that aren't solved. If we worked as a team, we could get it done. We could get it done. Yeah. And let's talk about circumstantial evidence just for a second. Okay. A lot, right. A lot of folks, you know, they, 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 they realize, you know, well, you know, there's, there's not the smoking gun. So just as, as a reminder, just so folks, as we think about what circumstantial evidence, right? If you think about um, how a cable is made that's holding up the uh, Golden Gate Bridge, for an example. If you just have one strand, then you have nothing. But if you keep getting maybe 40, 50, 100 strands, that, and, and if, if you use a pencil, you can get this analogy pretty simply. If you just had a single pencil, a number two pencil, how easy is it to break that pencil? It's quite easy. Five pencils. Now it takes a lot of effort to break those five pencils. But then if you take 10 pencils and you multiply and you just keep multiplying it, eventually you get enough resistance where you cannot break that grouping of items. And that is what circumstantial evidence is. And so if we think about, you know, we, we talk about, you know, the phone, right? The steps on the phone. Well, if she's deceased, then her phone is moving. And so that's circumstantial evidence. The question is, who's moving it? So then the circumstances to that is, well, who's in the environment? Well, there's evidence that Alec is in the environment. He's the only other person on that tape in the environment. So one can then step back from reasonable doubt and say, is it probable? Yeah. And, and so that's where I've had more, you know, no body cases, a lot of them, that is all solid circumstantial evidence. And that evidence is stronger than the person pointing the gun, because sometimes the defense can argue about a detail and get the fact thrown out of court that he was pointing the gun. Okay? 
And I'll give you a simple analogy or um, I, I know I don't want to keep going, but I'm, I'm going to give you a simple idea on that. I had a case where a, a young man was in custody for a for possession of a knife, stolen property that another agency felt was used in a murder. I came in, did a CVSA and unarrested him that evening from that knife. He turns to me and he says, Detective McDonough, thank you for believing me. Okay. Well, that case got so discombobulated with all the defense attorneys who just came in and started throwing lie after lie after lie. And then eventually those lies stuck. I, I think... That is the per, the danger of circumstantial evidence, because now the defense can set up interviews in unknown places in Georgia, and then tell the sled off the detective in a condescending way that he's in some kind of rehab. Well. That's circumstantial evidence that he's in a rehab because the defense attorney's saying it. But the, but the detective who testified, who did a great job, he was the guy who says, my best confessions came from defense attorneys. Love that quote. Absolutely love that guy. But it, think about that for a moment. This guy is being told by the defense attorney who set up all the call, set up all the questioning, set up the phone call nothing in person that his client was at a certain place because he says so okay? yeah. because he says so that is circumstantial evidence and so it goes both ways if you don't yeah. believe if, if you don't believe you know both sides of the of the coin you know you've you've got as um as johnny crock and cochran appropriately sold if it doesn't fit you must acquit well, and everybody knows that that glove had shrunk, you know, and he was wearing another glove. He was wearing a, a rubber glove on top of a into a glove. And it's like, OK, yeah. there you go. I try putting that on sometime. <laughs> that's a hard one. Yeah, you're yeah. right. And that's why you take you take the totality of what you do have, what is actual, what is there. And like I said, if you can put. um but if you can get enough forensic evidence, um, that's that that's wonderful. Uh, if all you have is a digital evidence, then that might be all there is, you know, to sway a jury. Um, you know, and, and like I said, the financial too. So there, there's a lot to this story. We don't know. There's a lot going on behind the scenes that brought this all to where it's at. What was this family dichotomy like? What? How were they? How did they get along? How were things going? How? How long had they not been with each other? There's all these things. And what about, you know, the sister um, who um, Maggie called and said, you know, he wants me to come out here. And, and I and it sounds really fishy, you know. I This just doesn't sound right, you know. And, and, and that's a conversation that happened between the two of them. And so there's a lot of questions about what else is there that we don't know about. Yeah, and and... You you tar you start looking at 
the trial going on here and you start realizing you know they have they had a lot of they have a lot of stuff a lot of evidence and and it's going to come down to really narrowing how to explain this in a closing argument i i think the defense is going to be you know obviously alec didn't do it there's no way he could have done it he loved his family and it's it's going to be some other dude and that the investigation was so screwed up they didn't chase the other dude uh you know they missed i mean let's look at the hipaa information look how look how foolish that was just friday at that they went around and around and that defense attorney hooligan i'm going to call him knew for a fact that hipaa anybody in their right mind knows if if a cop walks into an er room and says hey let me look at your uh, medical records here Every doctor in the world is going to look at you and go, you know, get the front desk here quickly. Get this guy out of here. So, you know, those are the kind of things where you just, you know, throw it against the wall and see what sticks. And he, you know, I love his, his um, demeanor of, you know, schmoozing the jurors left and right. And, I don't know about you guys, but if this guy is an elected official in South Carolina, somebody needs to look about the next election, in my opinion, because if he can do this so cleanly in front of the national TV, imagine what he's doing up there in your legislation. You know, just just throwing that up on because he's a public figure, just throwing it at the wall, uh, just saying. But, you know that of itself the theatrics in this are amazing and i and i love yeah and you're right he he was a bully to that to those de- that investigator that guy's just doing his job he's a, he's a very professional all of them all of them if uh if alec well he was smart to bring this in but you know what i find interesting is he was also there on paul's boat incident the same hooligan. The same hooligan. Yeah, there's connections, there's ties, and and th- this is what makes things so difficult. Is we're, we should be out of that that uh, frame of mind. You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. You know, it doesn't matter what you did. Um, I'll do you a solid. We see this happening in politics all the time, and it doesn't it doesn't change even within our own communities. It, it, it still happens. And, and really there should be a good look at, you know, why um, this person is, is involved with so many, you know, why What's the connection there? Yeah. yeah I mean, you, you've got to look at the body count around the name and I mean, you've got <laughs> that's Yeah. Right. So I have, let's take a couple of questions here. Are you good with that, Francine? And then uh, we'll see where we go here. Guys, if you have, let me play a a quick music run here and uh, throw a couple of questions up for Francine. Whoops. It's great having everybody here, by the way, on this wonderful Sunday night. It really is. We sure appreciate and love you. And thank you so much for being here. We only ask that you subscribe and then share this out to everybody. 
that is in your social media networks. We're grateful that our channel continues to grow, and that's because of you. And that is because of you. Let's see here. Yeah, Karen was even surprised. You know, my, my Karen was a PIO. She'd never, ever seen a um, PIO be put on the stand of all the years she was a PIO. All right, here's a good question coming at you. All right, Francine, have you ever been requested for your DNA system by Avery uh, or Dassey cases? So I have two things that I do um, under your skin, scars under your scars. Okay. So I use the MVAC, which is like a little suction thing that sucks up the DNA. And then I have the Bardol method that gets DNA from smaller items of evidence. But no, I have never used either on the Avery or the Desi case. Never. Okay. Uh, let me get up here. Whoops. There it is. Francine, can you address the difference between... I can't see that quantitative and what's the other, what's the first word? Qualitative. That's a, yeah. Qualitative. That's it. Okay. Um, well, when I'm looking at DNA, okay. Um, are you, are you talking about DNA? I'm, I'm sure. Um, so the first thing we do, um, and I'm not sure if this is answering your question, so I'm doing the best I can. So when, when we, we, we want to know how much we have of something before we can move ahead. So how much DNA do I have? And that's called, uh, that, that is a quant, okay? That is what we do. How much do we have? That's the amount. And then once we know that, then what we do is we can send it to DNA testing if we have enough, and it'll tell us if there are mixtures involved in all that DNA or not. I don't know if that's what you're asking, but that's on the, the DNA end. And so um, we want to know, begin, do we have enough to work with? And if we don't have enough to work with, then we're not going to move ahead on that. If we have enough to work with, then we're going to move ahead. Okay. And I've run into that. What's been really interesting is I use filters. And so um, on these filters, I, um, I'll say, okay, let's, let's take it to quant, quantitation. And we were going to, we're going to see how much DNA is on there. And we usually, I usually get really good amounts, but then we take it to DNA analysis and then we'll have like, you know, maybe a couple of mixtures, three mixtures. And so then what we have to do is we have to unmix those so we know what we have and then we know who is involved in that. Uh, I don't know if that really answers your question or not, but. Okay, here's another one. Okay. If you could test one object in this case, what, which one would you choose? Uh, me, I would choose those cartridge casings. I would take those. Um, no doubt you're going to get DNA because I've gotten DNA. There's at least seven. So, and they're not tiny. And so, yeah, that's what I'd take. Um, okay. They you the, here's a comment. They used MVAC on the bullets on the shell casings. No, you don't. You don't. You don't MVAC shell casings. Uh, the MVAC is a nozzle. It's got a little hose, and it's it's a little nozzle that's about that big around. And you have to have it so it can get a good suction. There's no way you could get a good suction on shell casings. Yeah. Let's see here. 
Now they could have used the, I don't know if they'd use the MVAC on the shirt, but I haven't heard that they have. This is more of a blood spatter question. How long does it take a red uh, blood drop to change color through time? And the testimony that we heard was the blood angle was 90 degrees that came straight down on the first shot uh, that Paul took. So that means he was moving and he had his clothing and um, his shirt. So there, there could be from his left side over here, 90 degree is straight down and it's, it's circular blood. And what you will see is what we call tailing blood. So wherever that tailing is, that's where that blood, that's where that individual is, is uh, moving. So yeah. I hope that answers your question. I love well, blood, blood has a little tail on it. You know, if it's been traveling and the tail points to the direction of where they're traveling. Yep. And I saw one in here. Okay. There it is. How many years can DNA be traced back? Oh, they've added years and years, centuries that they've, they've tested so many things. Uh, uh, Greg Cooper, you know, with the cold case foundation. Um, what was it? He did uh, the mummy. Um, King Tut. King Tut. <laughs> and yeah, it, they can last a long time, but you know, um, drier climates seem to be okay, but you got to be careful for moisture with DNA because it can moisture. That's why you put it in, in paper or boxes because it, the air can still get to it. And if you put it in plastic, um, you can get, you can, you know, bacteria can get on it, can be destroyed. And so you have to have it. So it's breathable. It's a, it's still a living organism, so to speak, that cell. Okay. Uh, this one is, I'm still wondering about the unknown DNA. It's more of a statement under her nails. So are we. Uh, it may be irrelevant, but it's just, it's probably not the suspect. It's probably not the suspect. It could be, it could be, um, you know, degraded DNA. It could be her husband, but just degraded and they didn't have enough to test it. What do you think? That, that, that can be common in with fingernail. Um, I, one thing I've learned about um, fingernails is I prefer scrapings than I do cuttings. And um, I, I, like I said, there could be a lot of reasons, you know, why she might have had somebody else's DNA. I, we don't know what that is. And, and we really, if you can't identify it, you're never going to know that. Um, they just said the left hand. I don't know what happened on the right hand. So have no idea. Can you get DNA off, off of his glasses? Sure. I mean, you know, if he had glasses on when he was doing, you know, the shooting and and uh, he cleaned them off or whatever. Um, you look at glasses, you got little hinges here. You know, you got little areas where it could possibly uh, fly onto and you could get DNA from that. Yeah. OK, we got one more and I'm going to let you have the final word. So how can they prove he is the trigger man? I think circumstantially what it does is it puts him in the, you got a couple of things. Number one, you've got the, the weapons that belong to the family. The, that's the first thing. You need a gun before you can put it in somebody's hand. And the question is, where does that gun come from? The answer is there. That gun came from the house, admittedly, from mm -hmm. Alec. Yeah. He says... He tells everybody about the gun. Go ahead. What were you going to say, Francine? 
Yeah, what I was going to say. Oh, go ahead. No, no, I interrupted. Well, what I was going to say is, like I said, you've got to put all the pieces together. Um, His habits, you know, how did he handle the gun? What was his habit of of storing the gun? Did he store to unload it or not? How often did he use that gun? How did he carry the gun normally? There's people that went hunting with him. There's people in the home that knew how he took care of the gun and how how he did stuff and how he would, you know, store it. Um, and, you know, um, whether or not, you know, even if the gun belongs to him, that gun uh, was in his home and and it belonged to him. And so what are the habits and knowing, you know, um, if he if he normally unloaded and then why would he suddenly unload it that night? Yeah. And the, the other the other part of this, right, is you got him at the scene. Mm-hmm. You have him at the scene. So here's something people aren't asking or thinking. If he's at the scene, so are the suspects. Why aren't they shooting him? That's the other point. The the only thing I could think of that would be a good, you know, answer for that was if he was there, but he had somebody that he paid a lot of money to. This guy had money. He was having financial problems, but he could have paid money or he could have, you know, owed somebody something and, and, uh, you know, give you money if you do this and then I'll get money, you know, I'll get millions of dollars if this happens, you know, money, money will buy a lot of illegal stuff. Yeah. And then with the time frame, the footprint, the digital footprint nails him and, if, uh, yeah. if he's not the shooter, the, my question is, and who is? Because we know, obviously, mm-hmm. then we have, you have to ignore all the other, you have, you have to ignore the footprint of digital evidence. You have to ignore Maggie's blood in her, in his car. You have to ignore, you know, blood on the, the um, um, seatbelt, you know, the button. Yeah, you know, you have to ignore the fact that he was holding a shotgun. You have to ignore the fact that her phone was thrown five tenths of a mile away from the house. You have to ignore the fact that he picked up Paul's phone and rolled his son over, but not his wife. And you were a grieving, you know, loving husband. You have to ignore the fact that she was living in another house down at the beach. You have to ignore the fact, and all of this evidence, again, just what I'm saying, if if you can't see that evidence, then, you know, okay, you're entitled to your opinion. You know, God help us if you get you know, what One of the things you bring up, though, is he gets in that car and her blood is on the steering wheel. Did they do GSR on that steering wheel? Did they do GSR on that seatbelt? You know, if, if he if yeah. he got in, that that would have been a good place because you see, that's another point is where GSR would be really important, and they could say, oh, well, it's because he rolled him over and he did this or not. Well, you know, that's still some circumstantial evidence that needs to be taken into consideration. And you know, why is it on this? Why is it, oh, let's bring it in? Yeah, I I I I always thought this one was kind of the giveaway when he said he rolled Paul over. I, I don't know anybody that would do that. I, I'm, I'm just telling you, in all the years I saw stuff, I don't know anybody. If that brain is not in the head, 
why would you roll somebody over so you could get a better look? What? What what was the purpose? Yeah, I mean, and and you're an experienced trial lawyer who the first couple of calls you make are to your family and then all your lawyers. And and the other one that would really blew my mind is the boy, the young man that Paul took the video for, he called him. He called him and couldn't get hold of him. Remember that part? And this is that in of itself, that that is evidence of consciousness of guilt and mens rea. The fact that he lied so many times is consciousness of guilt, mens rea. And the fact that he had all those um, those acts, those are all steps into guilt, or at least an appearance of guilt. At this point, you know, allegedly, right? He's in front of a, a jury right now. But watch what the defense, watch where they go this week. Watch where they go this week. They're going to attack the process. And they're gonna they're gonna just make up a story. And you 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 listen very carefully how they make up a story. Because there was a story made up in Stephen Smith's case where one of the family members got hold of another guy whose stepson was involved in a pretty serious crime. And that guy called the investigators to throw his stepson under the bus. But unfortunately, he was told to call by the Murdoch family and create the alibi. Isn't that interesting? How Alex's number one goal was to clear Paul's name. And isn't it interesting, is there another son that his number one goal was to clear his son's name, that son's name, by showing up at four o'clock in the morning with the deceased young gay male in the middle of a deserted country road? How did, how did this, what, did he just wake up from a dream and say, hey, there's a young man in the middle of the road who's gay. I guess I should go over there. Oh. Didn't happen, folks. And so with that, with that, I'm going to start looking into the Stephen Smith homicide. Well, there's definitely yeah. connections here. I, I, think, I think when you look at the totality of the lies, the, um, you know, whatever you want to call them, the untruths or whatever, you look at the totality of all this with everything, all the other victims and this one, you, you come full circle as to what the commonality is and, you know, really why this is going on. I, I really think it's very deep. I really do. I do too. All right. Uh, Miss Bardol, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, by the way, the next show, well, coming up, we got to reschedule. Is tell everybody, kind of give them a teaser 
about these oh i am i am a good teaser okay um <laughs> <laughs> ask anyone um so we're going to be doing um we're going to have great uh we're going to set up a time and we're going to talk about ted bundy um i knew him a little bit my son uh was his appetizer um and Kevin Sullivan, a wonderful author uh, who has done the most comprehensive research on Ted Bundy and his serial killings, uh, will be there as well. And I'm, I'm really excited, you know, that we can just kind of answer some questions. Uh, Kevin Sullivan, by the way, not only has he authored a lot of books, the one I liked really well was uh, uh, Ted Bundy, A Comprehensive History. It was so good. And um, he also has all the 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 items that were removed from Ted's uh, Volkswagen uh, that they found the mask and the tape and the garbage bags and all that stuff. And, and Kevin has those. And so he will be a great one to ask questions. And then of course you can talk to my son, he'll be there too. And he'll tell you from a probably a seven, eight year old viewpoint, cause he was about seven or eight years old about what Ted was like and you know, what uh, you know, him and his friend who his friend was, um, uh, Ted Bundy's girlfriend's son, whom he lived with in Utah while he was killing, and she's hardly ever mentioned, but uh, he'll tell you from, from what the things were like with Ted then. So it'll be a really good, uh, I think, uh, interview. It's going to be a good show. And uh, so, Francine, you all you get the last word. Uh, tell everybody uh, about your what you're up to, and then uh, we're going to go to Hawaii. You good with that? Oh yeah. I love Hawaii. I've never been there. So I do want to go. Um, <laughs> um, basically um, I'm really trying to, um, I, I don't do a lot of advertising, but trying to get the word out about uh, the Bardol method so that people that have cases like this know there is a technology that has been peer reviewed, uh, has been challenged. It's uh, gone through um, appeals and done very well. And these are the cases, the jewelry, somebody brought up something about her rings and her jewelry. Um, these are things, little things that we can do, um, not just shell casings, but jewelry and all sorts of small things. Really want to get the word out. And that's really what I, my focus is. I also use the MVAC, which is fantastic at getting DNA off of clothing and porous items of evidence. A lot of places don't have this. And this is a, these are two technologies and methods that can really help solve cases on that hard to find touch DNA because that's where things are going is touch DNA. So that's what I'm doing. And I'm helping families and law enforcement solve cases. Uh, and I, I'm doing it because I love doing it. Hard working every day. I'm stressed out 24 seven, babe. Wish we could fly away You and I Go to our favorite place Oh yeah, yeah Make special memories Together I'll be your company Now and forever I say we fly away You and me Go to our favorite place Feeling the sun on my face in a I 
taking away, don't hesitate now We're taking away, yeah we're taking away We'll never come down, we're going away Yeah we're going away, you and me Feeling the sun on my face in a way